Welcome to Booty and Bossy Eat, Drink, Knit. We are on episode 15 in the middle of our adolescence. And like all of the adolescents we know, we are craving sugar. So <laughs> we thought we would start with a dessert that is appropriate for the season, 4th of July. This is a family recipe that we made most 4th of July. So Booty, you want to take us through? Yes. I really looked forward to it. It's the best part of 4th of July. (laughs) (laughs) It turns out that the recipe came from the Philadelphia cream cheese wrapper Mm. or box, I guess. So this (laughs) starts with a graham cracker crust. I think you should make your own because they're super easy to make. You take a package of graham crackers. So you can buy those. You could actually make, I mean, sometimes people make them with digestives or fancier graham crackers. So you could experiment with that a bit. So I used the Nabisco Honey Made. Yes. My husband is quite the connoisseur, or at least he has a lot of feelings and opinions about graham crackers. And when I brought home the Honey Made box, which is the blue box, he said, that's not the right box. You need the originals in the red box. So, yes. I so. have not seen the red box in a very long time. He says that the honey maids are sweeter. <laughs> that's <laughs> why they're so good. That's why they're so good. He That didn't stop him from basically hovering over me in the minute that I had finished grinding up the graham crackers for the crust. He was like, okay, so I can have those, right? It's the cashew issue all over again. (laughs) I did get kind of that reaction from my daughter. (laughs) Ooh. (laughs) I know. Yeah. And they never last that long. The other thing, when I pulled out the package, I was like, wow, this looks smaller. And he was like, that's definitely smaller. Those sons of bitches. (laughs) He was really mad. (laughs) <laughs> They're chintzing us on our crackers. It's like the Frito-Lay people, and I bet they won't even listen. So Nabisco people, if you're out there, we notice that you're chintzing us, and we don't like it. Yes. Bastards. Yeah. Bastards. So, <laughs> bastards. so you might want to measure, my recipe said a cup and a half of graham cracker crumbs. So after you put in your crackers, see if you get a cup and a half. I did not do that because I was blindly following the recipe. Yeah, it took the recipe I had said it's usually about 12 crackers and it it took 14. Mm. Yes. Mine. And a a quarter cup of sugar. Now I'm wondering maybe you don't need as much sugar if it's the honey made ones, but that's what I did. Yeah. And then uh, it's a very forgiving recipe, really. And then six tablespoons of butter that's been melted. You grind up your graham crackers, pour them out of the blender or whatever you're using, and then add your sugar, mix that up, and then add your butter, and then mix that up, and then put that into a pie pan. And bake it for 10 minutes at 350. Meanwhile... While that's cooling, you can make your filling, which is my favorite part of this recipe. Well, I do really like the graham cracker crust too. Graham cracker crust is pretty awesome. So good. 
but yeah. the filling is a package of cream cheese, a can of sweetened condensed milk, and a third of a cup of fresh lemon juice. Yep. For me, that took uh, about three lemons, but that was maybe a little over a third of a cup. Yeah, I think mine was two, but it, they were pretty big lemons. And I did use my special booty lemon squeezer. Yeah, that's so good. So I great. love those. I mean, and I think that's why you know, it only takes a couple, too, is because you get a lot more juice out of that squeezer. Yeah. And then a teaspoon of your homemade vanilla extract from yes. your vat and then you blend that I did whip it up a fair amount and I think it was a little bit maybe lighter so the longer you whip it you'll get sort of more air in it I remember mom's was not super light and airy <laughs> she was like quick and dirty yeah Love but it, it's 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 good right. whichever way and the thing that's so great about it is that it's you know you don't have to bake it it's a good summertime thing I mean you do have, you bake the crust but you know you can make that at night so your kitchen doesn't get all heated up and then let it sit or put it in the fridge you don't have to bake it and it's a nice cool dessert too and the lemon juice is the thing that makes the cream cheese and the sweetened condensed milk set. So it'll be just like a regular cheesecake, maybe a little bit on the soft side compared to some. Yeah, but... yeah, I would say softer, probably sweeter. <laughs> but lemon juice gives it a really nice tartness that... Yeah, it kind of counterbalances the sweetened condensed milk. Yeah. Which by the way, I didn't I don't know. I I don't use sweetened condensed milk that much, but it was super thick. I didn't yes. remember it being as thick as it was this time. I remembered yeah. being able to pour it. I couldn't pour it. I needed a spatula and yeah, me pull too. It out of there. But the thing that you can do, much like the Hershey syrup. You mm -hmm. can make a little coffee and put it in your can of sweetened condensed milk that you've already, you've already poured out the contents and that's yes. with what's left over. It makes a very nice little coffee <laughs> treat. Little sweetened coffee treat. Yes. Candy coffee. And then for the toppings, mm. you have your choice of a variety of toppings. I like to just put blueberries and raspberries or strawberries some um, you know you're getting your fourth of july with red white and blue but there's also a cherry topping do you want to talk about that bossy well and i think mom just used to dump a can of cherry pie filling it's the right color it's got the the, the red goop which we learned is probably from bugs that that makes it that beautiful carmine color i did notice that there was a recipe at the bottom here for cherry glaze which called for a cup of pitted sour cherries so i bought a can of oregon specialty fruit red tart cherries which are basically just cherries in water but it kind of gets to be juice and then what you do is you make a glaze from that cherry juice 
it's actually for one 14.5 ounce can that you end up getting about a half a cup of juice. You mix together two tablespoons of sugar and two teaspoons of cornstarch. And then you put the juice in a small saucepan and add the cornstarch and the sugar and kind of stir it around and heat it up and it'll thicken up nicely. And then you can just spread it over the cherries. So that's a way of having more cherries and less red goop. I have to say, though, that without the the red goop, the cherries are sort of brick colored. And <laughs> when I put them on with the blueberries, it didn't exactly scream red, white, and blue 4th of July. It was sort of like the colonial version of <laughs> red, white, and blue or something. I don't know. It was sort of, I put them on and my husband was like, that doesn't look very, that doesn't look very red. What's the matter with those cherries? You know? <laughs> That's what so, you get without using the insects. And, yeah. And at that point I said, I'm sorry, I, I don't understand you because your mouth is full of graham crackers. Right. Um, so yeah, graham crackers that are too sweet and yet you're eating them anyway. Right. But so I would actually, the the middle ground in all this is I would go booty with your fresh fruit, strawberries or raspberries and blueberries, which are just great at this time of year. Mm -hmm. But then I would make like a little glaze, maybe use some raspberry jam and a little bit of, you know, half cup of raspberry jam, two tablespoons of raspberry liqueur. Mm -hmm. or blackberry, whatever you have, um, right. or, or actually triple sec would be fine too. Mm -hmm. And you just heat it up a little bit so that the jam becomes liquidy and then just paint fresh. it over the fresh fruit. And that, that makes a nice, pretty glaze on it, but you get the fresh fruit. That's what I would do. I think sometimes I people use current jam. Oh yeah. You could use current. Uh, yeah. The red current yeah. jelly that doesn't have, a you know, yeah. Yeah. I don't think I would do the, well, for one thing, this can of cherries, which I'm holding up, was $7.39. <laughs> that seems like a lot. Um, like I realize it is, it does say specialty fruit. Mm. So maybe that's one. It's got a B on there. So it's got a B on there. They're probably yeah, saving the bees. Yeah. It is all natural and it is hand selected, picked ripe. Yes. Yes. Excellent. Yeah, I I would do fresh and then make a little glaze, but it's it is so delicious. And I remember actually mom used to make it for President's Day because of the cherries right. and George Washington and the cherry tree story. That was the tenuous connection there to anything. <laughs> And you can make it, Booty and I both made it in a pie pan, which I think is more democratic right. in terms of the ratio of graham cracker crust, which the graham cracker crust and the filling is kind of the star of the show, I would say right. in this. Yeah. Yeah. You get the nice crunchy graham cracker crust with the creamy filling. It's really <laughs> right. Good. Is in the oblong, if you got a corner piece, which the that would jackpot. be fun. Yeah, you're like, woohoo, corner piece. In the middle, then you didn't get as much graham cracker. 
Yeah. So I, I would go for making the pies. If you do do an oblong, you want to double your graham cracker crust and your... And the filling. Yeah. 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 This was part of a cookbook that mom put together for us a number of years ago. I don't remember when she did this when she'd moved to Seattle, right? But Oh, yeah. But she had in the back of it a cookbook from the presses of the Lovell Chronicle, which is from Lovell, Wyoming. This cookbook belonged to mother, mom's mom, Miriam Poundstone Lewis. It dates from the early 1930s, and it is a compilation of recipes from Lovell, Wyoming. And on the back, it has a recipe for preserving children. And it says, these are the ingredients for preserving children. One large grassy field, half dozen children, all sizes, pebbles if possible, three small dogs, one long shallow brook. Mix the children with the dogs and empty them into the field, stirring continually. Sprinkle with field flowers. Pour brook gently over pebbles. Cover all with a deep blue sky and bake in the hot sun. When the children are well browned, they may be removed. Will be found right and ready for setting away to cool in the bathtub. And that is by Mrs. H.B. Richardson contributed that recipe for preserving children. I love that. I thought that was kind of great. Yes. So excellent. Um, and it also has, I, I guess these are advertisements. So it has doctors Croft, Horsley, and Croft. And their address is office in hospital. <laughs> the hospital, the one hospital. Yeah. I think there were about 400 people in Lovell, Wyoming. There's an attorney here, too, L.S. Strahane, attorney at law, and his office is in Snyder Block. <laughs> yeah. And their phone numbers? Phone. If you want to call Dr. Horsley, you just dial 45. Right. If you want to call L.S. Strahane, the phone is 62. <laughs> so, yeah. Needless to say, our mother went to a one-room schoolhouse. <laughs> but she was clearly well preserved because they followed yes. this recipe exactly it is a good recipe except for the browning mm. <laughs> yeah, there's no mention of sunscreen here yeah <laughs> but assumedly that the ozone layer was a little thicker in 1935 than it is now so maybe <laughs> you know okay uh, but and it says at the bottom and i think this is interesting Printing is the inseparable companion of achievement. Mm. So we need to know if we're achieving, or are we just printing? Or are we achieving? <laughs> well, if they're inseparable companions, then yay! Then da, yay! Da, da, da. <laughs> We've done both. <laughs> Woohoo! All right. Well, speaking of printing, yes. Our. Celebrity guest mm. is Peggy Ornstein's book, Unraveling yes. What I Learned About Life While Shearing Sheep, Dying Wool, and Making the World's Ugliest Sweater. 
this book has been going around the knitting circles quite a bit. It's viral in the knitting circles. <laughs> viral in the knitting circles. Yep. And I loved it. Well, and Booty gave a copy to me when I came out to visit in April. And I kind of started reading it then and was really enjoying it, but then dropped it, then picked it back up again. And I agree. It's it's full of wonderful, interesting information, but she's got a great sense of humor in narrating her adventure of wanting to basically create a garment from start to finish. I should say part of the context of this is her own life. She had lost her mom a couple of years, I think, prior to that. And her dad is struggling with dementia. Her daughter is going to go off to college in a few years. She's thinking about the changes in her life. And then there's the global pandemic and the fact that she lives in Northern California and is constantly watching for fire alerts. So, <laughs> it's just so all of that happening, good time to learn how to shear a sheep, right? treat the wool, spin it, dye it, design a sweater and knit it. And so, yeah. I mean, she did not take a single shortcut. She tells the story with a lot of wit and her personal journey was just so fascinating that you didn't mind that there was a lot of history. <laughs> <laughs> it just gave it such a, a rich tapestry. Do we dare? Yes. Yeah. And I think she has a really nice balance between, you know, she's telling her personal adventure through all of this and what's it like to shear a sheep, to learn how to shear sheep and how truly hard it is. But then also she's telling us about what's the story behind sheep shearing. And she uses each one of those moments, the shearing, the treating of the wool, the spinning, the dyeing, to kind of open a door into the history behind these various industries and the current challenges we learn about Godfrey Bowen, who's this incredible sheep shearer from, I think it's from New Zealand, right? I who, think that was right. Yeah. yeah. Who kind of comes up with this method that was, she compares it to like a dance that you're manipulating the sheep into various positions to make the sheep comfortable, but then it's also the most efficient for shearing. When you do it well, you can shear a sheep in 37 seconds. And let me just say, at one point she says she practiced on her dog. And I thought, I should practice on my cat. <laughs> I did not shear the cat. But yeah. I just sat down, put her in my lap. And then, you know, when she's on her back and everything, it didn't go well. No. That was that was kind of a no-go. Yeah. And, and that is the cat that actually is pretty good about us putting her on our lap and putting her on our, her back so that we can clip her claws. She just kind of sticks out her paw, <laughs> gets her little... She's the docile one. Yeah, yeah. the mani-pedi, well, kind of. But yeah, the other one would just squirm away. So there was definitely, that was a no-go. So I was really impressed, I gotta say. Oh, well, yeah. And she explains about how, I mean, one of the things we love about sheep's wool is that it's full of lanolin, right? basically 
Greece. And so you've got this 140 pound sheep that you're trying to shear. You're standing on this greasy barn uh, and you have to wear special shoes. Yes. Kind of like moccasins. Yeah. Her daughter comments because it's actually, yeah, it's like a type of moccasin so that when it absorbs the lanolin, it'll still stick to other lanolin. So you're not sliding all over the place. But her daughter was not impressed with the <laughs> That whole mother-daughter relationship really spoke to me. <laughs> yeah. I appreciated that she said, because I hadn't thought of it quite like this, but that, you know, and her daughter hadn't left yet, but she was anticipating it. Just that she felt like it was her whole life for 18 years had been devoted to making somebody else happy and then that that was going to change and I think she's thinking a lot about her own aging too her husband's Um, older so not only does that have implications for you know the future but also with COVID yeah extra specially worried I liked what she said this is on page 80 six where she talks about her her daughter and letting go and she says she counts down the days until she'll leave for college and I I have to learn to let go to allow her space to awaken to hope she does so with power and wisdom and a minimum of hurt in some ways I'm newly eager for her to leave as much as I'll miss her I worry the pandemic has become its own sharpened spindle that trying to eliminate all physical risk by, to borrow from another story, keeping her locked in the tower of our home will result in other unforeseen psychic costs. All around us, teens we know are succumbing to depression and eating disorders. I appreciated that she tried to explain, like on the one hand, there's this ache of loss that you're not going to get back that time. They're not going to be in your house anymore. But at the same time, there's this weird sort of sense of, oh, but now I am have time now to do other things. And what's my life going to be? But what do I want to do with that? Well, and wanting your child to have their own life at the same time that you want to be a permanent fly on the wall. So <laughs> you're... <Right>. you're <laughs> a part of it but yeah you're you're letting them leave the nest but at the same time you you want that but it's yeah that's so hard well she makes the point that we think a lot especially in california we have grown to think a lot about what we put into our body in terms of food like making it organic and sustainable fair trade, all of that, and that we have really utterly failed at doing that for what we put on our bodies. Um, yeah. That you think about, I'm, you know, looking at you, yoga pants, there's plastic in virtually every article of clothing that you buy in a mass manufactured facility. So yeah, I, I really admired her attempts to, well, first of all, she went to a woman to teach her how to shear sheep. Which was hard to do because it's 95% of the people doing it are men. 
And yeah. I think you do need a lot of upper body strength and that's where it can be really hard to compete. And she had actually learned to surf in San Francisco because she, she's, I think she's, is she from New York? Is it? Well, she, I think she's originally from Minnesota, but yeah, she'd no. gone to New York. and then, Right, yeah. right. After college, she went to New York to become a writer. And right. So she goes to San Francisco thinking, I'm going to learn to surf, not realizing that that's not really, that's more of a Southern California thing. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> but um, she goes to a female teacher and who says, you know, I think it's an advantage to be female because you're going to have to learn to balance a lot faster than the men who have the upper body strength. So that, that was sort of her philosophy for finding a sheep shearer. And then she wound up also the spinner was mm-hmm. female that she learned from, the dyer yeah. was female, the designer. Yeah, and I mean, I think that's one of the other sort of arguments of the book is that, and she, she has written other books about women and girls and coming to terms with body image and laboring under the patriarchy. And that that's certainly another thread that runs through the book is that these are all skills that were largely the purview of women until they were industrialized and moved over there. And and just how much, even in the mythology of, she, she talks about the three fates of Greek mm-hmm. mythology and how much the idea of making yarn or thread or string when the the first fate who makes it and then the next one who measures it out and then the last one who cuts it. Mm. Uh, But that idea of in so many mythologies that there's kind of figures for that of old women, usually old women, witches in Norse mythology as well, who are deeply connected to life as a kind of thread. And how much making fabric and things is deeply entrenched in how we think about life, even even in our language around it, like the fabric of right, the fabric of our lives. So many literary references that that was wonderful, and I mean, I felt like she said she was kind of just getting the surface of it, but but it felt exhaustive that she was. She was finding as many literary references as I could think of. Yeah, it's it's got a really nice scope because on the one hand, it's very much historical. And I, I kept writing down fun facts like I didn't know that Napoleon was rumored to have died from arsenic that came from the green wallpaper in his bathroom. That... Right. <laughs> I love that really into steam baths the history of the colors how we came to get synthetic dyes i found that fascinating there is a real risk when you're not getting something out of nature i mean of course you can find plenty of poisonous things in nature too but that you're getting you know so yay we got our our wonderful green color and it turns out that it's poisonous <laughs> right if you wear it so it, i think it's okay if you're just wearing it but if you sweat or it mm-hmm. gets wet if and then it gets wet. in your skin and that's when you're you're getting arsenic poison i felt like the witch is cackling and she says at one point she couldn't resist and she's hovering over her cauldron 
<laughs> and her husband Dying and daughter are yeah. saying, you know, what are, we, what are you doing? You know, and she says, puppies, puppies will make them sleep. <laughs> <laughs> Taking on the role of all of these women that have come yeah. for her it, making. Yeah. It, and it is. She she really knits these together wonderfully. The, the sort of the historical with the archaeological and the mythological and and that particularly comes up in the, the histories of color which by the way if you're using cherries for your cherry o cheesecake from the cherry pie filling that has a dye in it it probably comes from a bug basically most of those come from a bug and you know those candies like whoppers that we like kind of shiny that that comes from a bug as well that comes from the lac beetle like shellac actually comes from a beetle she really does a great job of weaving together her own reflection on her own life and why she needs this project the other thing I really loved about this story is that she said she has the kind of personality where she's constantly questioning whether what she's doing is good. And she has a Linda Berry comic posted in her office that the caption is, is this good? Does this suck? She's going into this knowing that this is really going to be about the process and not the project or the end result at every turn and she says in the title, she's making the world's ugliest sweater, which it's not that ugly, I got to say. I've seen worse. <laughs> yes, yes, I've seen worse. But she realizes that this isn't about making something that's just astoundingly gorgeous. It's about the experience. And I think so often we dismiss the things we do because we're not that great at them. Yeah. Not at you, ukulele. But <laughs> <laughs> and I came across this wonderful story. I'll put the the quote in our show notes. But it was Kurt Vonnegut and he he basically he goes to camp when he's 15 and one of the camp counselors was trying to find out about what he does and he, he says, "Well, I do piano, violin, I'm in the choir. And the counselor says, well, that's a lot of things. And and he says, well, I'm not good at any of them. And the counselor Mm -hmm. says, you know what? It's not so much about being good at it. It's about having that experience that makes you a a richer person. And it's something that, boy, if I could talk to my 15-year-old self, I really wish I (laughs) could say that. Yeah. And I think particularly as we get older too, I think there we feel more like a pressure to, we don't want to be the amateurs or there's a way that we feel like we should know how to do this. And I think that's ultimately really limiting when it's just about engaging in this creative process. I also loved, I don't know if you remember this towards the end of the book, she was quoting 
I guess it was James Kaufman. She did an interview with him. He's a psychologist who defined creativity as something that is, quote, both novel and appropriate. <laughs> and then he gives the second part as key. Suppose the person you hired to repave your driveway covered it with salami. <laughs> that would be novel, surely, but it would not be appropriate. <laughs> I know. I was picturing that the salami in the heat of the summer. <laughs> but I was also picturing nice like layers, you know, how like the the tile roofs are layered like that. Oh yeah. Like it could be, <laughs> like it could be nice circles. You can make a really nice yeah. pattern, be really pretty. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. So practical. A charcuterie driveway. Um, yeah. <laughs> that would be Bossy's husband's dream. but i just i loved that idea because it was to me it it put it creativity in the realm of the achievable in a way you know i think so many times we have this idea of you know creativity is sort of the the purview of the lone genius or something Mm -hmm. When it's grounded in sort of a sense of appropriateness and often creativity is is about solving a problem, but solving it in a a unique and novel way. I really liked that idea. the The other part I liked too was that so she she talks with this woman, and I didn't recognize her name, but Frenchie Denoy internationally known pattern designer and coach based in Texas. She describes herself as Franco Maori, American, Australian, for gender fluid. And she connects with her and, and she's really the one who helps her design the sweater to incorporate the yarn that she's that she's made when she's experimented with a variety of colors. That was the other thing I really liked was that a lot of she's trying to do natural dyes by and large. And those come from, I love when things change the way you look at the world. So she's walking around her neighborhood and thinking about, well, I wonder if I put those pear leaves in a vat, what, what color is going to come out of those or fig (laughs) leaves that, that was a fun fact, actually, that fig leaves secrete i think they create kind of a yellowy color but they secrete a milky substance that's actually very irritating to the skin so adam and eve if that was their first underwear would have been terrible that the well they definitely weren't in paradise anymore after they put on (laughs) the big leaves well that was so interesting that the lemon tree that she thought oh that and nope that's kind of i think like a muddy brown or something that yeah very exciting Um, the pinnacle of achievement getting a blue looks good yeah and I didn't know I mean I knew that indigo that there was a whole you know that comes from a plant Mm -hmm. but that I didn't realize that it has all sorts of other properties that it's a good antiseptic and Japanese Samurai warriors lined their underneath their armor because it was supposed to help with healing wounds and it was also supposed to be a fire retardant. So, I mean, it has all of these other. 
properties besides being, oh, it's a bug repellent. Oh, right. And a sunscreen, mm. too. I think those were some <laughs> other things. And I didn't know that but that blue is still a favorite color globally. Mm-hmm. Blue is far ahead of everybody else. But then in many languages, like I didn't realize the ancient Greeks, they didn't actually have a word for blue. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, and that blueberries are actually purple. Yes. That was... Biblical Hebrew, classical Arabic, ancient Chinese, Tibetan, Vietnamese, Celtic, and Lakota are just a few of the languages that have no separate concept for blue. Uh, many describe the sky with a word for green. Right. And I remember hearing a long time ago that the Inuit people have many, many different words for snow. Snow, yeah. Which makes sense. And in here in the Pacific Northwest, we have many different words for rain. Rain, yeah. <laughs> so it kind of makes sense from that standpoint that you would maybe, depending on your culture, if you didn't, and and not a lot of plants are blue. Right. So it's a rare thing. Yeah, and I didn't even realize that blue eyes... That that's kind of a trick of light and reflection that the actual irises are like a brown Mm -hmm. color. So, but so just lots of really fascinating facts that I think that make you appreciate more, well, just how much we take for granted in what it takes to make a garment, how much making a garment pollutes the earth. Right. Um, that was I yeah. think the amount of water that's best case scenario you're using a natural product that's not toxic right. and you're still using a ton of water to rinse it out she said that clothing production is responsible for a fifth of the world's water pollution dyeing cloth guzzles water the equivalent of 37 million olympic swimming pools per year yeah yeah. yeah. And, and I think it's the kind of thing where you, you don't really know until you are doing this kind of project firsthand and you realize, okay, this is a tiny little project. Right. And she's carrying these five gallon buckets of water from the bathtub out to her back porch to keep rinsing this stuff. And it's in the middle of a drought. She and her family are used to, they turn off the water when they're soaping up. They take showers that are only two minutes long, you know, so there's all this conservation. And yet to do this project flies in the face of everything around her that she's been learning to try and conserve. Well, so I highly recommend it. I think it's a great summer read. It's touching. It's poignant. It's funny. It's very informative. I can see why it's why so many people are excited by it yeah you know? i hope i hope that everybody who's listening mom mom i'll give mom. you a copy <laughs> <laughs> i'll lend it to you but yes. <laughs> and if you want to get more information you can always check out our show notes bootyandbossy.com and to let us know if what you thought of the book at bootyandbossy at gmail.com we'd love to hear from you And I think it's time to say, whatever you do, don't don't knit like my my sister. sister. But 
do knit on with confidence and hope through all crises. Mm. Elizabeth. Yes. Yes, We love that. (laughs) 